armies he said during the making of this episode all i could think about was how gullible the german people were they were suckered into hitler and some of them even loved them there will always be those who appeal to the worst instincts in humanity there's jimmy Dewan being uh, very thoughtful for you well this week we're going to be talking about patterns of force my name is matt coming to you from austin texas and coming to you from planet houston is my brother ken say hello ken and frequencies are open. Glad to hear. Well, obviously, we can't talk about this episode without talking about the Nazis. Uh, it occurred to me that I was wa- as I was watching this week's episode that uh, Nazis are somehow always portrayed um, in movies, not only as the worst, you know, as they're cast as the worst of humanity, as well they should be, but that they are also uh, oftentimes, you know, like bumbling idiots. Uh, you and I were just talking before the show about, uh, you know, Mel Brooks and uh, and uh, Hogan's Heroes and uh, all of those people who uh, who have just said, uh, you know, maybe it's better that we just make fun of them as opposed to giving them any kind of credit for doing anything good. Or or for being genuinely scary. Right. Just mock them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to a certain extent, uh, you know, the fact that you, you I mean, you, you've always got kooks and cranks. And so, no matter what you look at, did people land on the moon? Is Elvis still alive? Do aliens live among us? Are we secretly ruled by lizard people? There's always <laughs> going to be a, a fraction of kooks and cranks that right. will subscribe to any idea, and Nazism will be among them. However, I, I think uh, one of the reasons that, that Nazism had such a pro-war performance compared to, say, communism, which... Uh, for many people, was legitimate, even though its crimes certainly fall in the same ballpark. Uh, e- even if you want to maintain the uh, the notion that the Nazis were uniquely bad, uh, Stalin came real close. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's at least playing the same sport. Is that you know communism had a certain kind of legitimacy that came from academia and the arts, whereas those other arts, Mel Brooks, uh, Werner Klemper, and so forth, would mock the Nazis, right? Make them look stupid and ridiculous and absurd. And, you know, if you're a, a sad, twisted person who's uh, lost in the world and, and looking for something radical to, like, find your truth, you, you don't want to be Colonel Klink. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, right. Nobody's drawn to that. That is uh, definitely a fair point. The more you mock them, the more you sort of take their... Uh, take the edge away. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this has got a, a little interesting background in the writing of it, because uh, initially Paul Schneider, who has written a couple of, couple of stories for us in the past, turned in an outline in 1966 called Tomorrow the Universe, where, not surprisingly, there were Nazis in space. 
Um, ultimately, it got uh, three drafts in before the production team finally said, uh, ah, I don't love this. Let's go ahead and shut it down. So it wasn't until John Meredith Lucas came back on. Gene Kuhn had you know, sort of been talking to him about like, well, hey, why don't you write a few things and blah, 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 before they brought him on as the uh, uh, script editor, producer. And John Meredith Lucas then also wrote his version of of uh, Nazis in space. The problem was that by the time that he actually got around to writing it, they hadn't been picked up for the mid season yet. So he was like, well, I guess I'll just go ahead and put this over in the corner here. And uh, maybe if we need it at some other point, I'll go ahead and drag it out. Well, then of course they got the extension to do the, uh, the second half of season two. And he's like, well, good thing I've got this script. That's almost all ready to go. Robert Justman had this to say about the script. I like the idea of the script very much, but I don't think that the writer has fully realized the potential of what could be accomplished here. However, he has realized too much potential in the area of spending and money, mostly because there were these large crowd scenes with people giving speeches and people reacting to them and stuff. Lots of money to be spent there. Uh, so ultimately what ended up happening in the episode is that they just used stock footage and thought, uh, oh, well, this would be better. Yeah, so uh, you know, we can put this in a couple of buckets and and this relates to that, right? One is the, is it a parallel Earth? Right? Because we right. end up getting all these Earth similarities. And the answer here is a kind of twisted inversion of that trope. Yeah. No, it's not. It's it's the tainted. Uh, it's, it's more like uh, the planet of the Pats. Right. right? Which we in just which, did. Uh, in which, you know, a, a book is left behind and, and the people imitate the book, yeah. including their patterns of speech and the way they dress and the Tommy guns and everything. Yeah. So in one sense, you know, our, the, the other bucket that we put this in, what kind of Star Trek episode is this is some guy from the Federation has broken the prime directive. And in this case, not, not left a book, but intentionally thought I'm going to organize these people. It's planet of anarchy. I'm going to organize them by using, you know, the most efficient, um, you know, society of Earth's history, which is a fallacy, but we'll get to that later. And so he intentionally uses this, this metaphor, but that wouldn't necessarily imply that it's going to be the 1940s and people are going to dress the same way and cars will look the same. You know, there's the scene where they beam down and Spock says, well, they are, he lampshades the problem, right? They are humanoid, so the architecture will look, you know, uh, familiar or something like that. Yeah. By which he apparently means it's going to look like a Hollywood back lot. <laughs> <laughs> right? But if you make the choice to use stock footage to solve this problem, how do we show mass rallies and so forth? You're stuck with making it look like the 40s because that's where the footage comes from. True. I think that there is even at one point where you see Hitler in the... Yeah. <laughs> In the footage, and you're like, uh, I don't know, and that's that's really, it's too on the nose, I think. Yeah. Well, and this is because you know you're you're basically at the, at that point you've given in the cost savings. So another uh, Robert Justman note here on the last page of the story treatment, we have Captain Kirk again deciding to hide information from Starfleet. He determines that he should not mention the mistake that John Gill made. As usual, Captain Kirk goes blithely on his way, changing history and hiding information from his immediate superiors. This sort of action is, as you are no doubt well aware, a general court-martial offense. It also indicates that Captain Kirk likes playing God. 
<laughs> yeah, except that, like, I mean, the real problem is what Gil did, right? Right, exactly. All, all Kirk is doing is deciding not to destroy the reputation of Gil. Mm -hmm. Robert Justman then goes on to say this. As far as I am concerned, this revision of the story is as much a bore as the previous one. For any definitive comments, I fear that you, we will have to depend upon DC Fontana as I find myself overcome with an immense lethargy in reading the submission. Since the story bears such remarked resemblance to Paul Schneider's piece, I suggest that we do the same with this as we did with the other story. Let's toss it. However, a uh, story outline was found by Robertson. Whether or not, of course, this was Gene Kuhn or Meredith Lucas himself, we are unsure. But Robertson finds his way to the storyline and finds it to be well plotted. It had been a long, hard road, but Gene Kuhn would finally have his Nazis in space. Cushman goes on to write, By the time the script for this episode was written, Gene Kuhn was gone, and the writer of Patterns of Force, and also the producer of Patterns of Force, uh, since this was his, his script, who is going to tell the new producer of Star Trek that his latest script was not up to par? DC Fontana later said of this episode, after Gene Kuhn decided to leave, John was not a bad choice to replace him. He did know the show. He was an experienced writer-producer, uh, and he and I had a good relationship in regard to scripts and stories. He just didn't have the sense of humor that Gene Kuhn had, but he had a sound understanding of how the series works and how to exercise on it. On Patterns of Force, John took his notes, implemented them, and he was a thorough professional. So back to direct this week is Vincent McVitie. Uh, he's back for the second time this season. During season one, of course, he did Miri, Balance of Terror, and Dagger of the Mind. And now that Joseph Pevney, as we had learned, have, has left, uh, McVitie now becomes one of their uh, alternating uh, directors for episodes. And sadly, due to the Thanksgiving holiday, McVitie was only allowed four days of prep instead of the usual six that he would normally have gotten. And now in a really great story that I totally love, John Meredith Lucas uh, tells this behind-the-scenes story. He said, we were using some of the office buildings at the Paramount lot as backgrounds. Between setups, I ran up to say hello to Hal Willis, with whom I had started as a featured writer. As I was rushing back to the set, I was intercepted by a man who introduced himself, wondering if we might be relatives. His name was also Lucas. He was very friendly and obviously wanted to talk, but I had spent more time than I had planned with Hal. My assistant told me that the crew was ready for the next shot, and I was skirting on the out edge of my schedule as it was. I quickly brushed off the visitor, and we went off and shot the scene. When I looked up again, he was gone. George Lucas went to do the unforgettable Star Wars trilogies, and now has an empire north of San Francisco doing the most elaborate special effects for all of the, for, with all of his companies. My timing has never been good, he said. <laughs> <laughs> this has got to be one of those moments in your life where you're like, ah, I just I, maybe it wouldn't have changed, but if I would have been able to like chit chat with him, what could have happened? One of the actors was quoted as saying this about, uh, we've, we've talked about this a lot, about how quickly we always have to keep moving when it comes to this, but I thought that this was an interesting quote from one of the uh, actors. He said, possibly she, with those schedules, there was no other approach. You hit your mark, you say your lines. But that isn't the thing that they are truly paying you for. They are paying for you to never lose your character and always perform at the top of your ability to bring that character to life in the circumstances that have been explained. Doing television is, in many ways, like performing on stage. If you make a mistake in a stage production, you can't stop and do it again. You know your character, and you would do what that character would do to move forward, despite a 
prop breaking or another actor forgetting his lines. You think in that moment, what would my character do? And you just continue. And that allows for the sequence of scenes like these to be shot so quickly. It was also about this time that Paramount was coming forward and being like, guys, we really need you to tighten this up. We know that in the past we've kind of been giving you leeway and been letting you shoot over days, but I got to, you know, we got to tighten those drawstrings. We got to do whatever we got to do to get this done in six days. And so uh, McVitie uh, uh, really felt the pressure of doing this uh, six day production. NBC chose Nazis in space with uh, an attractive blonde-haired woman at that to uh, promote this episode, with the publicity photos being sent across newspapers in America. The teen and celebrity magazines, however, took a different approach. Instead of choosing to run... <laughs> Instead, choosing to run pictures from the jail scene with Kirk and Spock being flogged, revealing the green marks on the Vulcan's back. <laughs> and and if, if you look at his... Uh, this, of course, is a color feature, right? Right. But he, he does have a green tint, right? Yeah. Yeah, he does it a lot in this episode. I You can really see it in this one. Yeah. It's like sometimes they go back and forth on that. Sometimes the episodes you can really see the green and sometimes you can't. This one, they even like kicked his whole body in it. But it's funny that like the teen magazines would be like, I mean, on the one hand, you get like why they're showing shirtless Kirk and shirtless Spock. But on right. the other hand, you're like, the torture scene? That's what they're doing? <laughs> like, you're not going to see, like, Sean Cassidy all, like, yeah. <laughs> some kind of weird torture scene on <laughs> the cover of Teen Beat or whatever. Uh, well, that's all I got from behind the scenes. Uh, as we always say, let's just go ahead and get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So right off the bat, we see the Enterprise flying toward another Earth-like planet. Now, it's weird because you really have to be paying attention to the the uh, captain's log. I don't know why I blanked on that. But you really have to be paying attention to the captain's log uh, to hear that there are two planets in this system. Not that they don't talk about it more and more, but just uh, you got Xeon and you got Aeon. These are the two big planets that are fighting each other. We find out that the Federation envoy that was supposed to be observing uh, Aeon was uh, John Gill, and he's we haven't heard from him in six months, and they don't know why. McCoy even asks, uh, how do we know if he's even alive? I don't know, Bones. We're here to find out what happened, because I don't know. John Gill was uh, one of Kirk's instructors back at the Academy. He says... Uh, it was Spock who points out that it wasn't just names and dates. It's the hows and whys. Which reminded me of a great meme that I had uh, seen recently, which is uh, uh, some of this I'm sure you've heard of, which is uh, in elementary school, you learn uh, one way of history. And then in high school, you learn history another way. And then in college, they teach you that everything you have learned is wrong. And then on the History Channel, they teach you that everything was aliens. <laughs> Uh, suddenly, a ship uh, comes in comes in their way uh, on an intercept course. It's an unmanned ship, but it's holding a warhead. They fire phasers and destroy it. But it is technology beyond their capabilities. They must have had help. Dun dun dun! Opening credits. When the the shock, you know, the the they look at the at the John Gill picture. Right, which is like just hanging on one of those screens above you. There, it's just like it's there the whole time. Yeah, because they can't so, move uh, it. Well, there's that. 
I mean, theoretically, they could have taken the slide out, right? But right. they chose not to. Instead, they're yeah. going to Chekhov's gun that particular uh, portrait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, just so you know who it is later when we uh, see him through, we uh, him, through yeah. the doorway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's also funny, too, obviously, this being the 60s and the Cold War being, you know, start really starting to crank and whatnot. We just hear the warhead, right? They say it was a warhead. And the reaction on the on the bridge is just like, oh, no, not a warhead, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's it, it just is really evocative of the time. It is. And you think that they've dealt with, you know, so much more dangerous weaponry. Right. Right. That to get that reaction... He's really about the audience, not about yeah, uh, you know what would be properly in character for the crew. I, I would imagine the most evocative look you're going to get is plasma torpedoes. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That's really going to cause some damage. Back at it. Spock uh, reiterates the thermonuclear warhead that has just attacked him. It is beyond their capabilities. He repeats. We get no response from Gil. Uh, we find out, thanks to Spock, that that Eon is a warlike uh, people, uh, and yeah, and they are in chaos. Zeon, on the other hand, have a crude space technology with rockets, but they are a peaceful race. They decide they better go to the planet. Kirk and Spock. He has bones prepare and install subcutaneous transponders so they can be tracked. It's interesting that we never really get this again. Right, um, yeah. It totally next, makes sense. Go ahead. But yeah. it's a technology that they never employ again, so they can lose the captain. Right, exactly. So we sort of, obviously, in Next Generation, like, their communicators either have one built in or that's just what they start using. They're able to follow the and, communicator. And they can follow your life sign so precisely with the... Oh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, I think it was in the first set... Uh, season we have an episode where they talk about how amazing the sensors are yeah and you again get the sense that they could have found kirk if they wanted to <laughs> right well no one ever comes you know like calls down and is like are you okay what's happening you know it's like they 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 call up and they're like yeah hope you're doing okay you know it's, yeah. it's all right you seem fine uh um, yeah it becomes all very telephone right yeah rather than yeah we know what's going on our, our sensors give us a very clear, you know, I, your, your heart rate is elevated. Are you okay, Captain? Right, exactly. Uh, you know, we sort of do see one of these in Star Trek VI, actually, I guess, when they, with the... Uh, yeah, the brilliant patch. Yes, exactly. He tells Scotty to make one low pass in three hours, and if they don't hear from them, to beam them up no matter their condition. No matter your condition, repeats Scotty. So now they're, of course, in modern, modern for the 60s, clothes uh, that almost look like holdovers from uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, they beam down to a mildly European city, <laughs> to a... Uh, back the Hollywood back. backlot. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> as you said. Uh, suddenly, literally, a man falls around a corner. Don't know how he pulls that off, but that was neat. Uh, he's being chased. He tells Kirk and Spock to hide. They're coming. Who is coming? It's, of course, the Nazis. Damn space Nazis. So it's interesting to think about at this point. We are 25 years, I guess, out from World War II at this point. So uh, I'm sure that this is still, that Nazis are still on the forefront of both parents and grandparents at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at 
at the success of the World War II movie, mm-hmm. right? This this would have been right there at the heyday. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that this is like people heard stories of the Nazis, uh, you know, growing up like at the dinner table for those who wanted to talk about it, I suppose. Not everybody wanted to talk about it. Well, it was the most recent thing that had happened. Yeah. Right. So if you were thinking historically, what else would you talk about? So you've got current events. That's the Cold War. And then, well, what's before that? World War Two. Yeah, I'm sure it's ingrained in, you know. And just everything that they do. It's like, I mean, I'm sure we've got our examples now of, you know, 9-11 and uh, yep. all of these other big historical things that have happened. People asking, where were you? And, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm sure that's the well, same and, and kind ex- of... And explaining things in terms of 9-11, mm-hmm. right? So you get lots of, uh, well, uh, we've constructed a pandemic response that's reminiscent of the Patriot Act, right? Because that's our model. Yeah. We're not, we're not going back to some Cold War model of, uh, observation or you know maintaining a, a view of the populace it's it's the war on terrorists metaphor that we're going to use right so the nazis uh grab the the man they call him a zeon and they uh, appear not to like him very much uh they throw him up against the wall rough him up a little bit and then take him away kirk moves to help but spock points out the non-interference directive again uh, we are still a few episodes away from Omega Glory, but this too is a is a very prime directive uh, focused episode. Yep. Uh, and and take... again, it's a an episode in which someone has already violated it, and kind of Kirk is walking into that and trying to clean up the mess. Then a news feed comes through uh, from the Führer headquarters. The capital is to be made Zeon free. We hear today. News footage from uh, real Nazi Germany. Uh, we see a, a blonde lady who is given an iron cross. This seems like this might be important for later. It's also worth pointing out at this point that Shatner calls them Nazis, which is uh, kind of hard to get over, but that's okay. We'll give that to you. Well, so, you know, you have lots of different pronunciations going back because it's a, it's a, a I think, I think that would be the Churchill. And of course he's Canadian. Uh, yeah. So we might be we might be getting some uh, some secret Canadianness coming out. <laughs> secret Canadianness. <laughs> uh, propaganda tells us that the Egotians today destroyed a Zeon battleship this morning. Kirk points out to Spock that he looks rather good for being utterly destroyed. Then uh, John Gill is then shown as the Fuhrer. Dun dun dun. After the announcement, uh, another Nazi rounds the corner. Kirk knocks him out. And then Spock takes his uniform. Uh, and then in the next scene, Spock in uniform is stopped by a Gestapo officer. Ne- <laughs> and it's funny, too, because Nimoy becomes very, like, human casual in this scene where he's kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, his arms are moving a lot more. And he's like, yeah, there's a Zeon here we're taking down. And uh, it's really funny. I was like, wow, that's go Spock for being <laughs> for being totally human in that one moment. Uh, They then knock him out, take his uniform. Kirk puts that on with Spock telling him he would make a very convincing Nazi. In the next scene, Kirk and Spock look like they're just about to waltz right into the uh, HQ. They're stopped not once, not twice, but three times by uh, a major who uh, is suspicious the whole time of them. Tells Spock to take off his helmet, revealing those Vulcan ears. Dun, dun, dun. No way out, and they are captured. Commercial. 
Back to it. So we we see it the uh, in the animated Star Trek version where they go back to the that uh, time gate that's central to the city on the edge of forever. Mm-hmm. And the Guardian of forever. Yeah, the Guardian of Forever, and you know they're they're doing historical research, right? Mm-hmm. And coming back, you know, is like Kirk and McCoy and these guys. And uh, when Spock jumps through, everyone's like, who are you? And it turns out, like, uh, everyone else remembers the first officer being an Andorian. Mm. And only Kirk and Spock are like, no, it's this guy. We don't know who he is. And that's when they realize that there's a time paradox involving uh, Spock. He's got to go back in time and fix it. Whoops. Yeah, um, but you could you could imagine how much more difficult this would be if Kirk's entrusted first officer, whom he wants to run around the galaxy with, looked a little less human. If he yeah, had yeah, an, right. an, an Andorian or a Klingon. Or... Well, let's hope he would have been smart enough not to bring the Andorian with him this time. <laughs> yeah, it'd be really, really hard. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> We already run into some other situations coming up where I'm like, I don't know if they'd be able to get away with that, but we'll get to those. Kirk and Spock are now detained and thrown into jail. This is the scene where Kirk and Spock are being flogged. Green which scars. A, which ahead. is a weird like thing to do, right? Okay. You know, it's like, how many other sources of Nazi whippings do we have? <laughs> I, good point, I guess. So it's, it's obviously the villains, because... They torture you. Right. But uh, blogging? That sounds more like it's, you know, we went back to the British Navy and... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody broke the chain of command. That's right. Well, he didn't salute, and then he... Yep. He did all those things. That's that's why they're being flogged. That, that, their rum ration was also taken away. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that'll ruin anybody's day. <laughs> Green scars lay on Spock's shoulders, but they're pink ones on... on... Kirk, not red ones. The Major tries to interrogate them, but Kirk only throws witticisms back at him, being all sarcastic. The General enters. He is the chairman of the party. He tries to get Spock and Kirk reveal information about where they are from and how their guns work, but again, get nothing. The Captain starts the flogging already all all over again, getting them ready to be uh, killed, but the General countermands this standard order. Captain questions it. Not our captain, but the other captain. The Nazi captain. (laughs) The Nazi captain questions this. It's a standing order. Shouldn't we do it? The general says, well, you've had your hour. Where has that gotten you? Let's put them in jail instead. I'll talk to them. So knowing, of course, that the general then turns out to be sympathetic towards the Zeons in some way, you have to wonder why why if he is interrogating them alone, he would have just been like, help them in some place. But I guess he also doesn't know if he can trust them. So there's that. Right. So you've got this interesting kind of backstory, this layers to the story that's interesting, right? Right. In that you kind of imagine, okay, so there was a, a time before um, Gil was drugged or in his current state of incapacitation. Right. And he had students, people who had, you know, were learning what he was teaching, putting down what he was, or picking up what he was putting down. Right. And two of them would be this guy who seems to have gotten the genuine stuff that Gil was interested in doing. 
-hmm. and some other student who's like, well, what if we did this racialized stuff? Well, no, no, that's not the point. The point is the efficiency in our orderly society. Yeah, but look at how cool it would be if we, like, turned down the aeons or the zeons or... No, 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 right, you're, exactly. you're, you're, you're getting the wrong stuff. Here, let me close this book. No, that book is cool. I want to look at that later. <laughs> I want to look at more of that book. Yeah. Well, yeah, I also wonder, too, if the general knows that, like, that maybe John Gill wasn't from their, their, right. like, their like, planet. Right. Like, he's aware. Strange alien has arrived. I wonder yep. if he's, like, from Gill's people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, he does a lot through the rest of this episode to, like... <laughs> help them out and not throw them back into jail and whatnot, but... Yeah, like, failing to recognize them, and then... Yes, exactly. Backing their play, and then and then ultimately being a voice for peace. There's been enough killing. Yep. So, uh, Kirk and Spock talk to uh, a Zeon who's in the next spell. His name, we find out... Spell? Next spell. <laughs> uh, we find out that his name is uh, Isak. He tells us that the Zeons came over to the planet hoping to civilize the Ecosians, but the Nazi party took hold and then went after the Zeons. Zeons don't like, don't like to take lives. It's repugnant to them. However, says Isak, after what I've seen, I could probably kill them. It is here that they cut out the transponders out of their bodies and use the light from a light bulb mm -hmm, to make a laser to cut open the door. That must be some crystal they've got in those transponders. <laughs> focusing a uh, focusing a light bulb to make a laser. It's advanced science. You don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. You're right. <laughs> it's also funny because there's something about this that feels very James Bond to me too. You know what I mean? Using bits. Of, maybe MacGyver is here. MacGyver, <laughs> a better yeah. example. Using just what's on you to make some kind of ridiculous contraption that'll get you out of it. Uh, there's also a, a great bit of like humor between them in this scene. There's the line about, uh, I don't care if you hit the broadside of a barn. Why would I, I aim in such a <laughs> large red building? <laughs> and then Spock just like taking his time pontificating while he's standing on Kirk's back. Come on, no. right up. Yep. <laughs> so good. They, of course, make their way out. They attack the guard. They steal his uniform. Uh, they take the Xeon with him because, uh, or else he wouldn't uh, help them. So they make their way to the lab. This is one of the moments where I'm like, that's a little conspicuous because Spock still has no shirt on. Yeah. So we've got like two two obvious prisoners and one guard who's like walking them around. They eventually get there to where the uh, phasers and communicators are. Kirk steals the keys from a guard who's walking out by bumping into him. However, once they get inside, they find that all of their stuff has been disassembled, trying to make it work. The guard, then realizing his keys were stolen, comes back into the lab, only to be attacked this time by Isak. Spock steals the piece of the communicator, trying to make one whole one. They escape with a helmeted Spock again, and the Xeon on a stretcher. We're so successfully dealing with the Xeons today that <laughs> we yeah. have to take them out in stretchers. <laughs> exactly. There's no room for them in there. Zeon then takes them down to the sewers where they meet the resistance. We also find out that the Zeon Because we have to have the full trope, right? We can't just have Nazis. We need to have the resistance as well. Right. People working against the Nazis. Because it's we part also... of the trope. If you got the one, you must have the other. Right. 
We also find out that the Zeon's fiance was killed in the spreets. Well, the spreets. <laughs> By spells. <laughs> oh my god. Right. <laughs> this is a sad moment. <laughs> Very sad. Very sad. <sighs> we also find out that the Zeon's fiance was killed in the streets, left there to die for five hours and spat on. It's interesting, too, because I was thinking of, if we show, do you show this one to try and make it a little more like, you know, uh, or is it better left to be to be told in this way? I think for this one, it's probably better that it's left to be told, but. Yeah, this probably goes back to like our, our bizarre torture thing, right? Because standards and practices, you know, had rules about violence. Yeah. And so what kind of torture could we use? Well, obviously none that Nazis would actually use. Standards and practices will say no. Right. How about no what used by the British Navy <laughs> you know, back in the 18th century? Right. Okay. Flogging, yay. They want to take out the Nazis, but Isak also says if we adopt the ways of the Nazis, we become as bad as the Nazis. Spock then asks for a place to try and reassemble their communicator, and they are shown to a place. But while in there, Nazis suddenly appear. The blonde lady who had earned the Iron Cross that we saw earlier, she enters and tries to interrogate Kirk. I must see the Fuhrer, says Kirk. Then the blonde guy uh, in the resistance, he uh, takes responsibility for everything that happens here. Oh, you do, do you, she says, and shoots him. Boom. Kirk tries to take her gun, but the guards press their submachine guns into him, and he backs off. Too commercial. We're back. It's all a ruse, a cunning attempt at trickery. Kirk takes the woman by the neck, and Spock grabs her gun. Suddenly, they yell, don't shoot, and the blonde man, who we thought was dead, stands up. She is resistance. The lady, Doris, we find out, earned the Iron Cross by betraying her father because her father told her to. It's another way to keep on fighting, he had said. And now we learned about Melikon. Ooh, he's the deputy Fuhrer and he has taken over the part. Uh, he has taken over the party. Kirk then asks, what about John Gill? Who's John Gill, they ask. What? The, 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 there was just a news report where they were talking about who John Gill was. He's the Fuhrer. Shouldn't you know who the Fuhrer is? <laughs> your Fuhrer, says Kirk, he's one of our people. Well, who are your people? And we can see here why they're suspicious. They've got to wonder, like, are your people all like Nazis? Well, like, how did yeah. this come about? Every right to be concerned. Yeah, because okay. it, it would make sense that, like, if John Gill had been from uh, the, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the Mirror Universe, the ISS, Right. You know, whatever. You, you probably would get people setting up Nazi societies. <laughs> That's probably true. A lot more diabolical, though. Killing each other. Stabby in the back. Uh, Kirk then goes on to tell them that uh, your Fuhrer isn't even a Conian. He, too, is alien. So what you're saying is the guy who is telling us not to like aliens is himself an alien. Got Wait, it. The guy who's telling us that we should all be super Germans isn't really a German? <laughs> Weird. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's like Hitler who says we should all be blonde and blue-eyed, and he was nowhere near blonde and blue-eyed. 
so then says exactly like this because I wrote the uh, I wrote the the punctuation perfectly. This goes against everything that John Gill stood for, that we as a people stood for, says Kirk. They find out that John Gill is giving a speech tonight and make a plan with Daria, I mean Daris, Daria, Daris, to get uh, to get them inside. So, pretending to be documentarians, they follow Daris in. And that's a lot of fun too, with them like with the lights and everything. Yeah. Spock finally realizes why gambling is fun. He says it's the adrenaline rush. Great, <laughs> Spock. We'll make a human out of you yet, says Kirk. I hope not, <laughs> says Spock. The Xeon says uh, he is more than willing to shoot the Fuhrer through the door. That's not why we're here, mister, says Kirk. Uh, pretending to continue to shoot the guards for the documentary, Spock then looks in and sees John Gill motionless in the speech room, his chair being pushed into position. Must be part of the plan, says Kirk moments later down the hall. We need McCoy. They hide in a cloakroom and contact the ship. They tell Ohura to get McCoy dressed as a Gestapo doctor. You have to yeah, wonder what. So, the... Go ahead. Uh, the Gestapo was the secret police, right? They were okay. professional policemen. He should come dressed as a policeman, like a guy from Law and Order, <laughs> not uh, you're having a, a fancy uniform. That would right. be. So and that's another uh, common mistake about the. Were there doctors in the secret police? That's what you have to wonder. What kind of weird uniform are you pulling out of the... Uh, yeah. Out of the uh, memory banks. I also, too, have to wonder what the rest of the crew is thinking. You need what now? Yeah. A Nazi what? And, and can you give him a Bushido sword? And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Darius hears through the, uh, through the grapevine that communication has picked up uh, has been picked up, but their communication has been picked up, and a search has begun of the building. Kirk calls the ship, demanding to know what's taking so long. Dr. McCoy is having a problem with his uniform. Send him down naked if you have to! And they beam Bones down, still trying to put on his boot. What the blazes is this? Says Bones. <laughs> uh, just as the chairman and two guards enter the room, Dun, 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 commercial. Back to it. Kirk plays it off as if the uh, colonel was sick from drinking too much. The chairman says, yes, you were right to hide him. Spock, you can see the whole time, is trying to hide his face from the chairman. <laughs> then, continuing to play drunk, as the chairman walks out, everybody hails with their right arm, except for McCoy, who uses his left. <laughs> um... Spock, of course, finds it curious that he did not recognize them from the jail. Luck, says Kirk. Something you fail to recognize. I shall reconsider, says Spock. Well, Back in the they're lucky, but not in the way that, that Kirk thought. <laughs> exactly. Lucky that uh, he was on their side. Back in the main room, Nazis mill about as the uh, transmission begins. They all hail the Fuhrer. John Gill sits in front of microphones, but his mouth is not moving. He's talking like this. <laughs> oh, no, you've been replaced. <laughs> exactly. Yet John speaks through, uh, he speaks through the television. Kirk notices it, too. Random senses. <laughs> Give up. Random sentences tied together. 
McCoy wants to look at him. So one by one, they exit the room. Then they go back down to the guards to take a picture with Doris. And then instead, attack him! Dun-dun-dun! Uh, once they are out of the way, Kirk and McCoy enter the room. Once John Gill's speech is done, Melatonin takes over. I mean, Melicon takes over. <laughs> Good with these sci-fi names, man, I tell you. Uh, Kirk tells him to bring him down, uh, to bring him around, no matter what it, uh, no matter what it takes. Watermelon, then, I mean, Melicon, gosh. <laughs> Melicon then announces that an attack on the planet Xeon has begun. Kirk then urges Bones to use something stronger. Bones is leery too, but decides we must do it. It doesn't work, so Spock then has to try and awaken, awaken him via mind meld. A debate springs up as to whether or not to blow up the ship headed for Xeon or not. Kirk says, uh, 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 they discuss the lesser of two evils. Should we kill a thousand people to save millions? This, of course, is a very Star Trek debate, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, maybe? Or the and one? Of course, Kirk's holding out, like, you know, the, the gambit. If we could just wake Gil up and tell him. call it off. Yeah, just call, call the whole thing off. Tomato, tomato. Again, we also see uh, Spock's mind meld powers sort of loosely being rewritten here as he now somehow has the ability to set up a situation where all John Gill can do is answer questions but not instigate a or start a conversation. Poor John Gill reveals here that he tried to set up a Nazi regime because it so easily brought order out of chaos. However, he didn't see the racist elements being drawn in so quickly. Melikon has drugged Gill and took over. Right, so um, there, after the war, right, you're trying to explain how is it that Germany had basically fought off three world powers, right? The British Empire, the continental United States, and you know, Russia, another continental power. And so you get this explanation of, well, it must have been old Prussian efficiency, you know, dialed up to 11 by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not until the, the 70s that you get a whole kind of reconsideration of this theory uh, where you get, uh, you know, Mason and other historians saying, actually, the, the Third Reich wasn't all that efficient or well organized. It began organizing for war sooner. The rest of the countries in the midst of the Depression, uh, you know, still under the shadow of World War One, don't want to be belligerent and have arms, arms budgets and and think about going to war. So Germany, in that sense, has a couple of years head start mobilizing. But it it screws with their economy. Basically, after 1936, you know, the economy begins to tank. And they're forced into war much earlier than they had planned. And after that, it's the fact that they get all this free stuff. Uh, war equipment from first Czechoslovakia and then Poland and then France and the Low Countries that is able to keep this juggernaut moving forward. It's almost like if you had a, a Roman army that you know pillages a town, gets a bunch of loot, and then with that loot is able to move forward and pillage another town. And the Germans were not, in fact, efficient. They had simply gotten a head start and then done some pillaging. And then we interpret this as, oh, they must have been super efficient to do so much with so little. Nope, they just stole a bunch of stuff. That's right. 
So Gil passes out again. The drug they used is too strong, says McCoy. Suddenly, the chairman general comes in again. Spock now, with his helmet off, uh, has everyone else claim that he was here to kill the Fuhrer. That's why he's in the room. They demand that Spock uh, be taken to Melania. I mean, Melicon. <laughs> worse. On his way out, uh, the chairman raises an eyebrow as if to say, what are you all up to? Kirk then gives Gill another shot. You've got to speak. Melicon, inspecting Spock in the other room, calls him all sorts of mean things, saying, look at his eyes, sinister, and his ears malformed. Clearly. An inferior race. Back in the control room, Kirk tries to smack Gill into waking up. You've got to come out of it. More insults from Melikon as he talks about the stupid look of a trapped animal on Spock. Which, of course, he is anything but. Kirk then turns on the camera and broadcasts John Gill across the planet. We have been betrayed by Melikon. He is a traitor of his own people. Melikon then shoots through the booth at Gill and kills him. Isak then kills Melikon. A guard then goes to shoot Isak, but the chairman general stays the order. There's been enough killing, he says. Now we will live the way our Fuhrer meant us to. John Gill's dying words. I was wrong. Non-interference is the only way. As the group is, la uh, is wrapping up and telling them they're on their own, Darius and Phoenix ask them to leave. We must do this ourselves, us and the Zeons. It is time to stop the bloodshed. Spock says, with the union of two planets, they would make a fine addition of the Federation. Right now, or in like 20 years, maybe? Maybe in like 20 years. We'll just say that. Well, he's, he's certainly thinking they've, they've learned the key you know, lesson of the Federation, mm -hmm. right? That you have to put in a war behind you, have a peaceful future, one that embraces infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Right. What an edict. Aboard the ship, Bone says, a man with too much power can't help but play God. Spock says, your Earth history is filled with men wanting more and more power. power. They begin to go at it as Kirk shusses them, saying, gentlemen, gentlemen, we've been through one civil war. Let's not have another. Credits. So uh, NBC was in second place for the first half of this, but that fell into third by 0.2 percentage of an audience for the second half. As always, there was no media promotion for NBC by NBC for Star Trek and no back-end support to lure audiences away from the CBS movie. Trek's 11 million households dropped to 7.6 million for Hollywood Squares and then fell again to 5.3 million for the Bell Telephone Hour presentation of the Sights and Sounds of Chicago, exploring the Windy City's cultural blend of American inspirations and immigrant influences. One person who, yeah, right. One person who did find the uh, episode had uh, some had something to say was Paul Schneider of all people, feeling that he had been plagiarized by Gene Roddenberry. Schneider filed an arbitration against the Writers Guild of America. However, Writers Guild of America says that the script that John Paul Luke, John Paul, that John Meredith Lucas wrote was very different than the script that uh, Paul Schneider wrote. So he wrote 
Jean a note saying, I've been meaning to write this because I believe it's due. I've been told about the guild arbitration judgment on patterns of force script for Star Trek was strictly John Meredith Lucas. Obviously, I was wrong. I misread the situation and I owe apologies to you and Mr. Lucas, which I now tender. Snyder did not uh, did receive sole credits for the scripts of Balance of Terror and the Squire of Galfos. However, he did not write again for Star Trek until the animated series when he wrote the Territon incident. And uh, that's it. That's all I got on this one. Uh, anything else to wrap up that you got to say about this episode? No. So we get, uh, you know, nice playing with uh, some familiar tropes. Right. Not playing them in the same way that we will see them play in some episodes that are nearby. So mm-hmm. that that's nice. It is. So it looks like next week we have the ultimate computer. It's going to be a big one with uh, people we supposedly know from the future. I don't know anything. <laughs> but again, fun to watch. Uh, well, that it. That'll wrap it up for uh, Space Nazis this week on Star Trek. <laughs> my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you are, and we will see you all in two weeks. <laughs>